0: i name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Today's podcast episode is a flipped episode. You might remember episode 76, where I chatted with Ben Pronk about SAS leadership, elite fitness, and why, in his view, specialization is for insects. Shortly after we had that conversation, Ben started his own podcast with other another former SAS officer. Tim Curtis. It's called The Unforgiving 60, and they had me on as one of their guests recently uh, to discuss running, writing, and living with purpose. It was a real pleasure to chat away with Tim and Ben, and I'd encourage you to check out their podcast, The Unforgiving 60. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation.
1: Welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 podcast and our very special double episode, A Tale of Two Andrews. Our second Andrew Dr. Andrew Lee MP is a lawyer, an economist, a published author and a far better podcast host than Tim or I. His show, The Good Life, Andrew Lee and Conversation, has been running for over 85 episodes and has included discussions on topics ranging from racism, gender equity and peak performance to making wontons and feral robotic dogs. It's definitely worth checking out. On top of that, He also has a PhD in public policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard and is an accomplished distance runner, capable of completing a marathon averaging sub four-minute kilometres. Now, if that wasn't enough, he's been a member of the Australian House of Representatives since 2010 and is representing the seat of Fenner in the ACT as part of the Australian Labor Party. Andrew, welcome. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. I thought we'd start off, as we often do, by just getting a bit of a background
0: um, in yourself and and how you got to to
1: where you are today.
0: So I uh, grew up in... Sydney and Melbourne, Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, my parents uh, were academics who when they were overseas worked in, uh, in the aid program so uh, I guess as some people describe themselves as army brats, I was a bit of an aid brat, uh, moving around to seven different primary schools and uh, the sort of uh, slight disconnection from a solid friendship base that, that implies. Uh, my household was uh, was a sort of small p political one. My parents were very interested in what was going on in the world. Um, there was a, a good sense that um, a life of service to others was a life well lived. I guess originating from uh, p- the strongly Methodist background on both my parents' side. Uh, they'd met in chur- church, in uh, Ivanhoe Methodist Church, um, and so th- while their Christianity and Socialism had uh, uh, waned a little, there's, uh, there's, there's probably some hint of a Christian Socialist uh, up, uh, upbringing in the, in the way in which they thought about the world. Um, then uh, uh, came was uh, sort of settled in one high school and uh, and got got interested in uh, law studied law and uh, worked for Michael Kirby on the High Court who taught me more than uh, than probably anyone except my except my parents uh, uh, worked for a little bit in law but then sort of got interested in this uh, this idea that what matters is the framework of incentives rather than the framework of rights and so I then turned to study economics in the states. Uh, where I met my wife, worked for half a dozen years as uh, an economics professor at ANU, went to politics in 2010.
1: It's very interesting you talk about um, that interest in incentives. I've done a little bit of study in complex adaptive systems theory, and I find that a really compelling way to, to sort of make sense of the world. and one of the things that is says is that, that one of the few things you can change about a complex adaptive system is the incentive structures within it. Hmm. So it's, it's really interesting for me when you look at organisations and how they've been incentivised and the resultant behaviours. And I, I take it you see that a, a fair bit through your, your economic studies and, and also into your current role.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, I find uh, thinking at the margin, uh, approaching the, uh, concepts in terms of trade offs, uh, being aware of uh, opportunity costs and doing cost, basic back of the envelope uh, cost benefit analysis and net present value uh, is uh, a pretty useful way to think about most public policy problems. Uh, it also turns out to be the way in which I would answer most questions in my own life, uh, uh, ranging from uh, uh, what to eat to, where, when to when to go to the doctor to uh, whether to stay out for an extra hour drinking with mates or uh, head home and be fresh in the morning.
1: <laughs> Although it's Funny sometimes, and, and we've spoken about Richard Thaler's work in um, uh, behavioural economics, that even with that, you know, when you look at cost benefits, humans don't always choose the thing that's going to ultimately benefit them in the long run, do they?
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, people sometimes talk about sort of uh, uh, these new developments in econ- behavioural economics, but behavioural economics is now 20 odd years old, uh, and, uh, and while Thaler's just, uh, just picked up the Nobel Prize, of course, uh, Danny Kahneman got it uh, a decade or so before him, and a lot of those insights yep. are now incorporated into mainstream economics. Um, When you look at superannuation, for example, I think we set up the super system in the early 1990s uh, pretty much for perfectly informed, rational agents. Uh, We've now recognised that defaults really matter a lot, and uh, the typical person doesn't need more choices, they need better defaults. Uh, So those insights are flowing through to public policy as well.
1: Now, Andrew, if we can step back and look sort of globally at some big picture issues, um, Tim and I are big fans of quotes, quotes probably because we've got no original <laughs> ideas <laughs> but one of the one of the ones we particularly like is a, a Churchill quote which um, in fact he's quoting someone else but he says it, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to mm. time now we've seen democracy throw up some pretty interesting stuff lately. We've got uh, Brexit, we've got Trump, we've got Duterte in the Philippines. We almost had Le Pen in um, France, Vilders in the Netherlands, and then of course one of my uh, favourite ones. We had Boaty McBoatface come up as the um, the potential name of a of a, a British um, survey vessel,
2: and we have Ferry McFerryface in Sydney <laughs> That's Harbour. It. There you go.
0: <laughs> All of which sound like the sort of thing that a uh, Ukrainian uh, leader who was a former comedian might have come up with.
1: A hundred percent. Are we, as in the people, to be trusted to make these sort of decisions? Uh,
0: it, look, it, it's, a, it's a really important question, and uh, I certainly think that voters do get it right. Uh, but... We've seen a rise in populism in part because we've gotten uh, worse economic outcomes for many in the middle class and uh, uh, working class across the world. Uh, People in uh, the United States uh, have seen uh, their wages stagnate and uh, a, a whole lot of challenges in terms of so, falling social mobility, so it's not surprising in that context that you've seen these so-called deaths of despair, uh, the rise of opioid addictions and deaths to uh, to overdoses and increasing suicide rates in some countries. Uh, so there is an economic piece to it. Uh, there's also a, a component which has to do with canny political entrepreneurs, uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, in some sense has a similar playbook to Pat Buchanan uh, before him uh, but is just a, a more effective political actor in, in implementing uh, that uh, that approach to, to politics. Uh, and then the mainstream parties haven't done as good a job as we should have in uh, making uh, Centrist, ongoing economic reform, uh, interesting and engaging to, uh, to to a distracted electorate. Uh, we've seen seen uh, some exceptions to that. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, Justin Trudeau has, uh, for uh, notwithstanding his recent uh, re- recent issues, uh, managed to to be pretty effective at uh, uh, engaging with a, a strong, exciting centrist agenda. Um, Emmanuel Macron, like, likewise. Uh, so there's, there's exceptions, but by and large, mainstream uh, parties uh, around the world have, uh, have struggled to engage with the rise of populism. Uh, we're certainly doing our best here. We're talking in the uh, midst of an election campaign a few weeks out from polling day. Uh, and I'm, I'm very conscious as a, uh, a candidate for a, a social democratic party uh, of a need to, to engage people who would otherwise uh, be disaffected by politics.
1: Mm. In your um, in your book, Choosing Openness, you quote uh, Orwell. In fact, and talking about the distinguish or the um, distinguishing between patriotism, which is loving your country, generally a positive thing, and, and nationalism, which is that sort of more insidious cousin of it that's uh, really manifested in people believing their country is better than all others. And it's interesting you were talking just before about uh, some political actors. Kind of hijacking that popular sentiment into uh, forms of nationalism.
0: Yeah, and we're speaking on twenty twenty sixth of April, uh, I, the day after I had the honour to lay a wreath at the war memorial, uh, and so those two aspects of patriotism and nationalism are very much in my mind. All uh, of course, writing in the uh, shadow of uh, of World War Two. Uh, so much aware that uh, when you start thinking that uh, no other country is uh, is c- c- could hold a candle to yours, uh, there is the risk that you, uh, you, you that hubris translates into a, a desire to invade Poland, uh, and uh, and yet there is so much to be proud of and and to love about Australia. Uh, so I really want to capture that uh, that love that love not just for Australia as it is, but also for our traditions, uh, for uh, uh, Patterson and Mabo for uh, the, uh, the the tra- the traditions of egalitarianism and mateship and the fair go, uh, which have the the traditions of of de- uh, democracy. Uh, leading with the secret ballot, being the, the folks who invented the ballot box, uh, the, uh, the early uh, extension of the fran- franchise to women. Uh, there's so much to be proud of, uh, but you don't want to let it go, go to your head. Uh, you want to also understand that uh, we're operating in a glo- global world and, and that plenty of other, other countries have terrific things to teach us as well, and uh, travel is one of the, the sheer joys of life.
1: Without a doubt. And I think also we tend to get these foundation myths, don't we, that, you know, we, we uh, look back with rose-coloured glasses on our history and, and forget that where we are today is is a result of a whole melting pot of different factors and not just some sort of purist, idealistic notion of what it means to be an Australian.
0: Yeah, that's right. And. Uh you know, I think I think about the uh, uh, Burkean view that uh, uh, tradition is the democracy of the dead. Uh, that so much of where we are now is a result of pretty careful decisions made by uh, those who've gone before us. So naturally, we should be looking to reform where we can. But we also want to ask the question: uh, How did things get to where they are now? Is there a good reason for the way our institutions are, are set up in this way? Uh, so, for example, in the case of uh, uh, let's abolish the states, uh, my, uh, my response is, well, actually those, those, those state boundaries may not be perfect, but probably if you sat down to do an ideal federal structure right now, you'd come up with something that didn't look all that different from what we've got. Uh, on the other hand, would you sit down now and uh, uh, write a constitution that said that the head of state had to be uh, somebody who lived in a castle on the other side of the world of a particular religion and bloodline? No, you probably wouldn't do that one, so uh, maybe it makes sense to, uh, to become, become a republic but uh, not abolish the states. Andrew, you studied at the Kennedy School
2: at Harvard.
0: You studied a PhD
2: in public policy. What motivated the decision to study overseas and how influential was that on where you are now?
0: I was always intrigued by the notion of uh, being able to go to the other side of the world and get a perspective on your own, better perspective on your own country. Uh, I suppose it's, um, it's, that, it, it's that thing about uh, you know you're going to miss your country, but you also know that if you want to make a a real impact on public policy. It helps to be around not just the best people in Australia but around some of the best people in the world. Uh, And I loved studying at Harvard. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, My Thesis, uh, th- thesis chair was uh, Christopher Jenks, uh, a splendid sociologist, uh, who probably would have trained as an economist if he'd uh, he'd, he'd come back and done it again today. Uh, David Elwood and uh, Carolyn Hoxby were on the on the committee. I worked closely with Robert Putnam when I was there. Um, Worked with uh, uh, Martin Feld or learned from Martin Feldstein, who was on the uh, chaired Reagan's Council of Economic Advisers, and Jeff Liebman, who chaired the National Economic Council under Clinton, uh, and all of those people uh, were at the cutting edge of, w- of what they did. Uh, and at the same time, we uh, we had a, a, a terrific bunch of Aussies. We set up a thing called the Half Baked Ideas <laughs> Seminar. It sounds like our podcast. Well, exactly, and, and the idea was we would deliberately float an idea that we knew we were on the wrong, uh, wrong side of the world from Australia uh, was not going to be perfect but encouraged all of us to keep on thinking about policy challenges in Australia. Uh, and that was that was an enormously rewarding part of, uh, of what I did uh, did over in the States. Um, and many of my best mates uh, uh, are people who I met when I was at the Kennedy School, people like uh, David Madden and McGregor, McGregor Duncan and uh, Peter Tynan. Um, it's sort of odd that you, you go to the other side of the world and find a bunch of Aussies who then, end up being your uh, your closest friends in the world. Oh, and I shouldn't have, I shouldn't of course leave that uh, leave that answer without saying the very best thing about uh, going to Harvard was uh, I met my wife Gwyneth over there, uh, who made the very very generous decision to come back to Australia with me.
2: <laughs> yeah, that would have been a fundamental error to omit that. Uh, and before we leave the continental US, what lessons? could we learn from U.S. politics? You know, we've been watching various regimes over the years do it in different ways. As you're a um, studious observer and having studied at Harvard, what do you think we could take away, maybe in a positive sense, but potentially also in a negative sense from from U.S. politics?
0: I mean, there's... It's a much wider political spectrum. Uh, I remember someone once commenting that uh, all of Australian politics would fit inside the US Democratic Party. Uh, and it's it's also got some, some big and interesting char- characters. And so the... Oratory of, of a Clinton or an Obama uh, is certainly something that that inspires all of us who sit down to uh, uh, try and trudge trudge out our own little uh, little contribution contribution on the Australian speaking circuit. Uh, but there's a there's there's a willingness to use words like love uh, in the political discourse, which I think is is perhaps healthy, perhaps to, to show a little more emotion than uh, than Australians typically do. Uh, there's also a need to engage with uh, issues of, of deep deprivation as well uh, but I wouldn't want our health system to uh, to look more American uh, I don't see a great deal of advantage of funding your schools based on uh, the value of the properties in the local neighborhood I don't see that's uh, that gives you very much in terms of social mobility uh, and uh, an electoral system which seems to exclude far too many Americans from having a say in their nation's future, I think is one of the, the, the things that's holding the US back. On the innovation front, the, the energy of the innovative clusters around uh, Silicon Valley or Austin, Texas or uh, Route 128. Uh, is is pretty exciting and and you even get that sort of spilling over. You're in a, a local local Starbucks in those places and, and the, the, the the there's a sense of energy and creativity in the air. Uh, Americans will get back from spring break announcing that they've just been off to uh, Kenya. They've decided to set up a uh, their own non profit to deal deal with homelessness in uh, in Nairobi. And uh, the the that that uh, that involves is 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 kind of impressive.
1: I've always I. I'm a big fan of the Americans. I spent a year there. We've worked with them a lot through the military, and I think there's a lot to be admired about uh, their society, notwithstanding the the shortfalls that that certainly do exist. But one of the things that's always struck me is that they're very willing to celebrate their entrepreneurs. They're very willing to um champion those people who are who are having a crack and who are who are trying to to make a go of it whereas i I tend to feel in australia we're often the the tall poppy society we want to cut down those people who who are trying to rise above the parapet
0: yeah, I mean, the, the tall poppy syndrome can be overblown. Uh, we're all pretty proud of Cathy Freeman when she uh, came back with that gold medal in 2000. I don't recall anyone sort of saying that uh, that, that Cathy needed to be cut down to size. And, you know, in, in the tech space, uh, I detect a lot of pride with uh, the Atlassian guys, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, for what they've managed to managed to achieve. Uh, I think our tall poppy syndrome is, is less about... Uh, being successful and more about thinking that uh, just because you're successful you're better than those around you in that sense, it's it's probably not an unhealthy thing, given that we know that a lot of success in life has to do with luck. Uh, you know, if I you know, just take, take my own, my own example, uh, as somebody with a uh, scrawny build and poor eyesight, I probably would have been easy prey for a saber-toothed tiger through most of human history. It just so happens that uh, uh, being able to uh, write and talk with some reasonable facility uh, produces a, a decent, decent outcome in the moment in history in which I've been lucky enough to be alive. Uh, but there's an awful lot of good fortune I see in my, in my own career and, and plenty of others in, uh, in when, I, when I look at other successful people. Um, so we want to be a little, little less inclined to kick the unsuccessful into the gutter or put the successful up on pedestals. Uh, for me that's what the tall poppy syndrome is about
2: on writing on talking you're certainly well traveled andrew you're well read you're well studied but you're also well written and uh, you (laughs) co-authored a book with david Burchell in 2002 i love the title of it the title is the prince's new clothes why do australians dislike their politicians so i've got to ask the question why do australians dislike their politicians
0: Well, before I answer it, I should say that uh, it is uh, a a problem so bad that our publisher, UNSW Press, insisted the cover image be uh, a picture of one dog sniffing another dog's backside. (laughs) Um, That meant that when the... Parliamentary Library, uh, sorry the Parliamentary Bookshop in uh, Australian Parliament House uh, were sent copies of the book. They refused to put it on their shelves, saying that it was too offensive. Uh, so my book and Mark Latham's book of quotations, titled A Conga Line of Suckholes,
2: uh,
0: are the only two books reputedly to have been banned from sale at the uh, Australian Parliament House Bookshop.
2: Well, it's funny you mention that. We, we tried to get a copy and it's out of print, so I'm not sure whether it's sold out <laughs> or it's out of print for another reason.
0: Indeed, indeed. Since it's the Lady Chatterley's lover of uh, political science, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I I think there's there's a number of things going on. Uh, certainly, we as politicians have been too quick to jump to sound bites and uh, move away from deep explanations. Uh, where. Uh, there's, there's a lot of us trying to, to push back at that style of politics. Uh, you know, I look at Bill Shorten's 70-odd town hall meetings, which are trying to move away from soundbite politics and into conversational politics. Uh, but it is, it is hard in an increasingly fast-paced media landscape uh, in which the duration of political soundbites have gone from about 30 seconds in the 1970s to about 12 seconds in the 1990s to now about seven seconds or so. So politics used to be in paragraphs and then in sentences and now in phrases and that makes it harder to communicate complicated ideas and, and build up trust. Uh, it also means that you get more stories around uh, scandals and backflips and fewer about the substance of, of good announcements. Uh, we've we've also uh, I think uh, found ourselves in a, in a moment in history in which um, those forces of, of populism have uh, been inspired by the more rapid pace of change. Uh, so there's a, a nice book by Thomas Friedman uh, which argues that particularly since 2007, uh, the pace of technological change has sped up uh, and that's that's left many people feeling that uh, the world's going too fast and I want to get off. Uh, the, he talks about the uh, rise of the iPhone, the transformative impact of that, uh, the impact of uh, gene editing technologies, uh, the very rapid shifts in uh, in the way in which we consume inf- information, uh, just as, as having a sort of uh, a, a, a deeply unsettling effect, effect uh, which again potentially drives people away from traditional institutions uh, such as big business or churches or large organised mass political parties.
1: I'd like to talk about diversity now, Andrew. You make this fantastic quote in Choosing Openness uh, where you compare a distrust of diversity to wisdom teeth um, with the argument that from an evolutionary point of view, they were probably both once useful, but they've now since lapsed into redundancy. There's a lot of efforts being made uh, in many quarters to increase diversity. But in many cases, what we're seeing is kind of surface-level diversity, so just based on, on sort of uh, demographic characteristics, gender and, and race and religion and that sort of thing. Have you got any ideas or any thoughts on how we can promote true diversity and allow true um, diversity of thought and, and sort of safety to to discuss ideas like your Half-Baked Ideas Club at Harvard?
0: Yeah, and you know, I'd be fascinated on the reflections that both of you have as to how... Uh, how the optimal degree of diversity within special operations teams where you want to solve complicated problems but uh, unit cohesion is also absolutely critical. Uh, I, I look around uh, successful organisations whether they be uh, sporting teams or businesses uh or society, society as a whole and see terrific strength in diversity uh, it brings a plethora of new ideas in uh, it allows the uh, interplay of different perspectives uh, more diverse boards seem to seem to perform better uh, if you have a, a city that is a monoculture then pretty much you can guarantee that that city is going it is is not going to be the most prosperous in, uh, in the area uh, and yet we are as humans uh, conditioned through uh, hundreds of thousands of years uh, to think of uh, those who are unlike us as being Uh, Dangerous Uh, for most of human history. Ninety-nine percent of human history, the best strategy to employ when confronted by somebody you don't recognise is hit them on the head or run away from them, Uh, because for most of human history we've lived in these little groups of a couple of hundred people, uh, in which difference was a sign of danger. Uh, So we have our sort of evolutionary upbringing running against the uh, upbringing pushing against diversity, while all of the economics uh, suggests that uh, that we can benefit greatly if we're to uh, put aside our monkey mind and uh, and engage with those who are a bit different from us. So it doesn't surprise me that where you look at surveys of diversity and trust that you see an initial impact uh, of diversity driving down levels of trust uh, but then a, a long to ter- long, longer ter- longer term you see that abating. Uh, I think about my parents who uh, never would have considered uh, dating a, a, a Catholic uh, These days the distinction between Catholics and Protestants is uh, uh, essentially meaningless to uh, to my three little boys uh, and so hopefully in the future uh, you see, uh, sexuality and, ra- and race going the way of that, those the, of, of the uh, uh, religious uh, di- differences.
1: And certainly, you talk about the the three waves of immigration into Australia: um, the sort of Italians and Greeks after World War II, the Vietnamese and Lebanese in the the seventies and eighties, and now the uh, contemporary, I guess, this latest wave from uh, more Middle Eastern countries. And you cite in choosing openness that we've had great. Assimilation, like multi generational, but, but large, um, largely successful assimilation of the first two waves. Certainly, my wife is uh, from Italian heritage. Her grandparents were part of that first wave, and um, you, you wouldn't find a more Australian person than her father. Um, What are your thoughts in this current wave from the the Middle Eastern side of things? Um, Is religion a complicating factor here and in particular um, the uh, lack of separation of church and state in many of the countries from which the the current wave of uh, Australian migrants have come?
0: Look, I think difference is always challenging but that, uh, that church and state critique was of course uh, made of Catholics. Uh, you look at the criticisms made of John F Kennedy when he was running for president and uh, uh, his, his Republican critics would say look you can't possibly have a Catholic in the, uh, in the White House because Catholics are required to obey the Pope and so uh, they will be unable to make this distinction between their religion and their civic duties. Uh, so it's it's not a it's not a new argument uh, and I think the the way of, uh, of, of dealing with those with that that diversity uh, is to better get to get, get to know people who've migrated from different countries uh, to recognize the, the strength of those civic cultures um, the particular approaches to, uh, to to beauty and to, and to community engagement uh, and to Ensure that our conception of what it is to be Australian isn't governed by stereotypes, but by values. So we're not a nation who loves FJ Holden's and Vegemite sandwiches and and cricket and uh, white white blokes in uh, in in hats sitting in the sun. Uh, we're a nation that is. Guided by values like multiculturalism, mateship, uh, and the fair go. Uh, and those values are, are able to uh, hold us together in a way that the stereotype.
1: Yeah. And that kind of future is is challenged i'd imagine by the the declining degrees of community we we don't teen or seem to to tend to associate as much with our physical neighbors and in many cases we're associating more with online communities that are sort of based on these stereotypical beliefs rather than the the real life communities you you mention in your book um or in choosing openness that um we don't quite know what the, the ideal strategy to build community is yet, but you talk about the idea of randomised trials to, to look at different options and, and to, to double down on those that are most effective at fostering uh, civic engagement. What what sort of programs might be included in these sort of trials?
0: Wow. Well, so that's a question that sort of spans two of my books. I'm trying to work out uh, exactly how to tackle it, but le- <laughs> let me go to the uh, the, the civic community question 1st mm. Uh We've certainly seen a a significant decline in in a lot of those civic institutions. So uh, in his uh, book Bowling Alone in 2000, Robert Putnam documented some of the worrying trends of the United States. And uh, a decade later I did a a much shorter contribution called Disconnected, which found that uh, we'd seen a decline not only in church going and union membership and the share of people casting a valid vote, Uh, but also in organisations like Scouts, Guides, Rotary, Lions. We ran surveys which we've replicated as recently as last year which showed that Australians were uh, less likely to know their neighbours and had fewer close friends. Uh, So I do worry about that decline of civic community and it's it's probably uh, one of the factors driving the uh, political disengagement uh, and uh, and, and distrust of politicians Mm. that we talked about before. Uh, in terms of the solutions, I see them as, as being partly drawn from community, we've been holding a series of reconnected forums in the last few years since I've taken over as the Shadow Minister for Charities Not-for-Profits and in those we bring together local community leaders uh, who, are, who are running charities and not-for-profits in a particular area uh, and just break into small groups and talk about what's working. And you get all kinds of interesting strategies. Uh, the uh, singles tree planting events that Greening ACT does, uh, the kayaking waterway cleanups that are done in uh, Newcastle, uh, the way in which Park Run has had success uh, throughout Australia in having a, a very simple model five kilometres, 8am, Saturday morning, and it's free. Uh, the way in which mothers' groups and book groups have bucked the trend of uh, declining civic engagement. So we're trying to sort of build those learnings up. Uh, I think there's a role for government in this but I think there's also uh, a lot of work that can be effectively done at a community level if we share the knowledge as to how, how to make these things work. I am a fan of randomised trials, and I've I've thought a little, but probably not enough, about how randomised trials might be used to evaluate successful strategies for building building civic community.
2: Mm. Andrew, from lawyer to academic to advisor to politician, but also to running. Oh, good! I was hoping... In we were to 2017, run. you ran the Tokyo Marathon in uh, two hours 42. Seconds. In fact, Ben's had the calculator out. What what does that equate to? Would I be right in saying it's 3 minute 51 Ks,
0: Andrew? Something in that order.
2: So you obviously find time to do some training because that's an incredible time. Uh, Maybe the same question asked in a different way. What do you do for you? Uh,
0: So running for me is uh, a great head cleaner. Uh, It's the way I like to start the day. I'm incredibly fortunate to uh, live in a part of Canberra where I can be in the bush within about a minute. Uh, So this morning it was just a a light run day so I went out for a, a very easy 10k along the bush trails there and when you've got the uh, birds singing a- above you, kangaroos jumping out of the way, you probably saw about 20 kangaroos this morning uh, and you're running on a nice soft surface which is good for your knees it's pretty hard to get back from that and not feel good about the world. Uh, my dad was a marathon runner, my grandfather was a marathon runner who ran 50 miles on his 50th birthday, uh, so I guess I've got the, the genes for it and probably the build for it. Um, I'm also fairly uncoordinated, I can't uh, catch or kick or throw, so uh, essentially all I, can, all I can do is run, so I've made the most of, uh, of doing what I can. Um, and and just loved the running community as well, uh, particularly the Indigenous Marathon Project started by Rob De Costello, where I've uh, run all the uh, World Marathon Majors wearing an Indigenous Marathon Project supporter singlet. Uh, but also benefited greatly from talking with Rob De Costello, one of my childhood heroes, about uh, the best way to to train and to to stay stay fit. And I also I love. Uh, as, I mean you guys would know this uh, as much as anyone, that joy of of pushing yourself to your physical limits, uh, which as you get into into middle age, uh, you're more, I'm even more grateful than I was as a kid uh, for the ability to to push push really hard. It drives all the sort of uh, clutter of the day out of your mind and just gives you with, leaves you with that sort of, hard gym-like focus uh, after a good, uh, good training session. Uh, there's a phrase called lavalopte, uh, which a cyclist called Jen Bobet came up with, uh, which is this combination of speed and ease, of force and grace, uh, the happiness of moving as quickly as you, as, as you can given your physical limitations. So, so I yearn for lavalopte when I'm out there, and, and every few training sessions I find it.
2: Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, staying with the question, what do you do for you? Recreational reading, if you were to reach for a book or a piece of literature, what would that be?
0: just finished Tim Winton's Shepherd's Hut, which is good for a, uh, a person who tends to open a book too late at night and fall asleep too quickly uh, because it's uh, largely following one guy who's going on a trip and so uh, when you don't have 20 different characters and inter- interlocking storylines but you have uh, one bloke walking along, uh, it's uh, it's easier to, to pick up the, ta- the tale. I've also been trying to read to, to my boys. Uh, so, uh, find find books which are a little above their uh, reading level and and read them out loud in the evenings. So, uh, my eldest son Sebastian and I just got through Longitude, and we're reading uh, David Hunt's True, True Gert at the moment, which is a rollickingly entertaining Australian history story. Uh, and then do a lot of a lot of podcasts. Uh, yours, of course, but uh, really enjoy. Uh, Michael Glad, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, uh, Guy Raz's uh, po- podcasts. Uh, my friend David Madden has a terrific one. Yeah, there's just so much great podcasting material out there at the moment, which uh, which helps to broaden the mind and uh, and just remind you what an, an interesting world we're living mm. in. So,
1: how do you fit it all in? You easy ten k run this morning. i I think I've run about ten k's in the last six months. So I'm I'm sort of on par I suppose. But I ran, um, I ran 12 today but certainly not at sub 4 minute pace. In fact you you mentioned that you, your 10k and run made you you feel really happy about the world and yourself. Uh, to make us feel really bad about ourselves what was your time for an easy 10k these days Andrew?
0: So I run I, um, probably about 4.5 minute pace when I'm, I'm doing an easy, easy run. Um, I'd push below so the, the, the simplest training maxim I've ever, uh, I've ever heard uh, is it, go, it goes in haiku form. Um, run a lot of miles, some faster than your race pace, rest once in a while. So I try and adhere to, adhere to that, uh, get as many Ks, Ks in as I can, which sometimes involves sleeping a little bit less than, uh, than you would otherwise. Um, get a speed session in every few, every few days and try and take a day, a day off a week. Uh, so yeah my speed sessions I'd try and get under that race race pace and uh, uh, easy sessions set a sort of min decay over it
2: so how strict are you on routine to cram all of this into a working day
0: I'm I tend to get up early so you know somewhere between 430 and 530 um, and uh, ideally get a little bit of writing done before I head out for a run Uh uh, but I'm aware that when I'm I'm at my most productive is when I'm I've got the best routines, and that the thing that is killing me at the moment is is feeling like I'm um, I'm spending too much time answering email. Uh, I, I think we as humanity will figure out a better way of communicating with one another than uh, uh, passing around a couple of hundred emails a day. But right now we seem stuck in a in a kind of bad equilibrium for uh, for for email. Um, and then, you know, just we're in the middle of an election campaign, so there's there's a lot of travel and then uh, a lot of uh, the engagement with, with my own electors and with uh, uh, electors and uh, and stakeholders in other uh, uh, parts of the country. Uh, that's all immensely rewarding, but you also then want to make sure that you can switch off politics and switch on to kids in those, uh, those moments you get to spend time with them.
1: Andrew, do you schedule deliberate time
0: for thinking in your day? Only really is part of running. I probably should do it more. I've uh, experimented with uh, with short meditation with Headspace, and I certainly find uh, that leaves me in a good good space. But at the moment, the meditation is coming through running, and particularly through the hard running sessions. Um, there's, I, I'm really conscious that after a good hard hill session where I push the heart rate right up, um, that I'm actually I'm a nicer person for the remainder of the day um, I don't think it's just the endorphins I think there's a, a sort of purifying aspect to uh, a good speed session which at least for now is taking the part that uh, meditation would would t- would otherwise take in my life
2: mm. Andrew what advice would you have for someone who was considering a career in politics
0: be aware that There's a huge amount of luck in politics and so regardless of how good you are and how much you you merit uh, an elected office, uh, chance will play a massive role. So don't do something you hate in order to improve your chances of politics. Uh, Do things you love uh, and focus on doing them well but stay engaged, uh, recognise that most politicians are from mainstream political parties and so uh, if you're serious about getting into politics probably your best channel will be through a mainstream political party and that joining a party doesn't require that you uh, adhere to every single policy that that party takes forward, uh, that, uh, that there is this is a team sport and just as Members of a, of a footy team might well believe that the play ought to go left on the field and make that case on the, in, in the locker room. Uh, when they get out on the field, if the decision is to play the ball to the right, everyone plays the ball to the right. So I've always thought of politics as being a team sport and I'd encourage people to uh, join a, a political party if they're uh, uh, serious about making a difference, a, a party that uh, has a credible chance of supplying a Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, make sure you've got something that is unique to offer. Uh, politics is at its worst when uh, it's uh, drawn from a narrow gene pool and at its best when uh, you've got a, pa- a diverse party room. Again, going back to that question about the strength and diversity. Um, so I really find myself now, after nine years in, in the... Labor Party room uh, reverting to type much more as a former economics professor, uh, recognising that my value added to the room is bringing uh, economic thinking in uh, and that uh, others will be uh, tapped into uh, to thinking from the perspective of a pediatrician or a former social worker or a former principal or a former truck driver uh, or a former business executive uh, all of those different frameworks uh, are useful but they become much less useful if we all try and behave in the, in exactly the same way uh, so so that's yeah uh, for somebody who is con- contemplating politics uh, to develop uh, a unique skill is is pretty pretty valuable
1: do you think that ability to be your authentic self um is a function of age certainly from my perspective if i look back i reckon i was uh trying to play the role of an army officer in my my early years and it was only sort of towards the end of my career in the military that I felt much more comfortable, uh, you know, being my more authentic self rather than, than trying to uh, play to the the type that was was perceived. Have you found that in, in your own journey?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think we're too quick to envisage that there is one kind of leadership uh, and that, that's, that that leadership is the sort of... Uh, Sh- shouty, masculine, uh, stand-up-the-front-with-a-deep vo- deep voice kind of leadership that has traditionally prevailed in society. Uh, I'm, I st- when I was studying at Harvard one of my favourite courses was uh, drawing on um, uh, Ron Heifetz's notion of adaptive leadership, the idea that leadership, in a, particularly in a political context, is about creating a crucible in which groups can make difficult decisions about contested problems. Uh, and that's that's a very different style of leadership, but one that I think we need to foster on issues like Indigenous reconciliation, for example. Politics is still pretty macho. Uh, the The environment of question time uh, is is too shouty and privileges a particular style of, of communication. Um, fast fast paced shouted insults uh, do do much better than uh, considered considered arguments. So, yeah, we need to, to encourage people to find their, their authentic voices more readily. Uh, as, as you say, it's, uh, it's something that comes a little with age, uh, but we can also create better environments for people to feel comfortable in their own, in their own skins. We don't do a great job in politics of uh, mentoring and of handovers. You know, I think of my job as a, as a local MP, the, my predecessor, Bob McMullen, who I greatly admire, stepped out of the job one day, I stepped back into the job the next day. Uh, if there's a change of government in, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, the ministers won't overlap as CEOs would in a CEO succession plan for a firm. Uh, one set of ministers will leave, the next set of ministers will come in. Uh, so to the extent that we can have uh, better uh, hando- handover procedures, will probably serve the country better. Um, but these are these are these are issues that uh, I, as you can tell, they're sort of nascent, nascent ideas. I'm still struggling through exactly how we'd implement. Mm. Andrew, how do you define happiness? Wow, uh, n- I mean, this I think it goes to a sense of deep satisfaction in what you're what you're achieving. Uh, a notion of being part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, so, uh, when we in economics think about uh, utility or well-being, uh, we don't envisage simply that that will have to do with the maximum number of uh, neurons that are lit up in your brain when you uh, bite into a lovely piece of chocolate, uh, but that it also it has to do with living a life in which you feel you're being well used. Uh, and in that sense, you know, that drives me as a policymaker to think about things like the inherent value of work to someone's identity uh, and the notion that, uh, that a good life isn't simply one in which someone maximises their income, but it's also uh, one in which uh, each person in society feels that they're playing an important role in their community. Uh, For me it's also about getting the the work family balance right. Uh, I feel as though I struggle to spend enough focused time with my kids and one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is uh, uh, getting getting more of that time. Uh, I'm also aware that there's a value to uh, uh, gratitude. Um, uh, There's a lovely line by Neil Walsh, the struggle ends where the gratitude begins. Uh, and I try to, uh, when I do the uh, do, do a diary entry at the end of the day, I just have a little dictaphone on the car dashboard, basically just for myself, just to get it all out of my head. One of the last things I do is, uh, is a gratitude exercise, uh, just identifying one thing in, in my day, uh, which, is, which has brought me pleasure and for which I'm grateful. Uh, so that's, that's again a way of trying to center center myself on on uh true long-term long-term happiness and, and not the sort of uh, ephemera that you can sometimes strive for
1: the fleeting sort of materialistic type happiness that we often uh think is is the you know correlated with success um yes and yes. we within our podcast we draw a lot of inspiration from obviously the rudyard kipling poem if um and also the the flecker poem uh, golden journey to samarkand are there any particular lines? You, you're obviously incredibly well-read, and, and we've we've discussed a, a number of books. But are there any particular lines, books, or quotes that you find um, inspirational?
0: So, the one that I have on my uh, on, on my computer screen at the at the moment is a, a quote from Walter Pater uh, back in eighteen seventy-three, uh, which which I look at when I think about trying to focus, Uh, and I'll read it out to you because it's just in front of me now. Not the fruit of experience, but experience itself is the end. A counted number of pulses only is given to us of a variegated dramatic life. How shall we pass most swiftly from point to point and be present always at the focus where the greatest number of vital forces unite in their purest energy? To burn always with this hard gem-like flame to maintain this ecstasy, this success in life. And I like it because it just, it, it reminds you that there are so many things you could be doing uh, at any given time. You'll never finish all of those books, you'll never get through all of those interesting uh, articles that people are putting on social media. Uh, you've got to find the things that will make you burn with a sense of gem-like intensity. Uh, but I do love IF as well, and it was listening to your podcast that inspired me the other day to go and print out IF uh, onto a piece of nice paper uh, and put it on the wall of my eldest son uh, who uh, who reads it from time to time. So thank you for that.
1: It's our pleasure. We, we love hearing that. I think both Tim and I, IF was a part of our childhood, um, and I think it is a, a wonderful... You know, lessons in life, just a really good meditation on what it means to be a good human being.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, you know that lovely. I suppose I'm influenced as as uh, Kipling was by the the Stoic uh, philosophy in life, uh, that idea that. You shouldn't worry too much about what others think about you, but about the impact you'll uh, you'll leave on the world. Uh, and one of my favourite tales from the Stoics, uh, uh, Tim Ferriss mentions it on his podcast, is uh, that they would sometimes put on unfashionable clothes and walk down to the local markets uh, and just walk around looking uh, lo- looking out of out of place, in order to remind themselves that these things don't really matter very much. That it's okay to be out of step with the common fashions uh, what really matters is to do good and important work uh, not to get daily da- daily smiles
1: exactly and I think also not to expect that there's going to be some kind of karmic reward for this that you know to accept that life isn't fair that you know really bad people can lead long and happy lives and really good people can have these short and miserable ones but that isn't how you should be measuring success in life
0: Yes, and I I did a podcast interview uh, on my podcast, The Good Life, with uh, uh, Martha Nussbaum, the uh, Chicago philosopher. Uh, One of the things I found most fascinating there is her insistence that anger is a dumb emotion, uh, that sure, you can have righteous anger in which you're you're inspired by uh, frustration at a social problem like indigenous deprivation, Uh, but the idea of anger as... uh, Uh, Tom hurt me so I will hurt Tom that's a dumb idea uh, so she, she argues we should we should do as much as we can to, to banish that notion of anger from our own lives um, I've been intrigued by this idea of a politics of love which uh, some New Zealanders have, have written about uh, uh, there's uh, you know it goes goes back to Mandela and Gandhi and Martin Luther Luther King Obama touched on it a little uh, but the notion of uh, an Agape style uh, love generalized love as an inspiring force for politics to me is, is an intriguing one. Uh, I haven't quite gotten my head around how it would work in practice, I'm not sure what a politics of love means for monetary policy for example, uh, but you saw in Jacinta Ardern's response to the uh, Christchurch shootings uh, a sense of the, the value of, of that loving approach to politics in uniting a community around a, around a common cause.
1: I think the politics of love is a great way to to wrap up this discussion now tim and i vowed that we weren't going to talk about politics i think every question we asked you was actually about politics but we kept it away from partisan politics so i guess that's something andrew thank you so much for your time absolutely magic to speak to you
0: absolute pleasure and, a, and a real, look a real honor to be on on your podcast so keep up the great work love listening and listening to you, to your podcast you're exploring such important issues thanks andrew Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.